Let's pray together. Ah, Lamb of God, may we never take for granted what you have done for us. And I pray as we begin a new study today that you would draw our hearts to you and that our love for our Savior would increase as we think more and more about that Lamb of God who has taken away our sins, who suffered and died for us so that we could become the children of God. We are so blessed. So help us now as we come, Lord, please. Oh, fill our minds, our hearts, our thoughts with the truth of the Word of God. And let the power of the Word of God change our lives, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Okay, we're not off to a good start on this. Kevin, I think I'm going to take it off and try it again. This is just me making sure I have it. I do, okay. I'm only laughing because you guys have no idea how much consternation it can cause when some of these video things don't work. Uh, can I get an amen for you on that, Jordan? Yeah, so yeah, <laughs> he understands. He feels my pain. when it's, so. I have to tell you, I'm always a little sad uh, when we say farewell to a sermon series because it just becomes part of, part of my life and hopefully part of your life. So yes, it was a little hard for me to conclude our series last week on the 12 minor prophets. You don't know how much I was tempted to try and manipulate another week or two into that. I thought, well, I know I told them two weeks per book, but I can do a kind of a summary statement or sermon when we're all done. And I can, I'm like, okay, Rick, just no. We're just going to move on. We're just going to move on. So it's, it's hard for me. But at the same time, I tell you, I'm always so excited then for the next series that we are going to be able to do. And so this series is the book of Mark. Before we jump into the book itself, though, I I think it's going to be helpful to to familiarize ourselves with, first of all, Mark the author, the man himself, and then also then the context of the book and some introductory things. So a lot of today is just going to be kind of setting the stage for what we're going to be studying over the next several months in regards to this. So the first thing I want to do, though, is look here at Mark the man, Mark's personal history. Now, Mark was not one of the apostles of Jesus, but we can still piece together a lot about him from different passages in Scripture. For example, his his given name, his Hebrew name, is actually John. But his surname, which is also his Greek name, was Mark. And of course, we know him most frequently and most often, we know him best as Mark. Just a couple of verses. I'm the, uh, Acts chapter, you don't need to turn here. Acts chapter 12, verses 12 and 25 both refer to him. It says, John, whose other name was Mark. So sometimes in Scripture you will see that, John, whose other name was Mark. You'll see John Mark. Basically, that is Mark. That's who we're going to be focusing on. We also know that he came from a fairly well-to-do family. 
We know that because, if you remember, again in Acts chapter 12, that's when Peter had been arrested and he was going to be, he was going to be killed by Herod. And so the believers, many believers, they gathered together into a house, a larger house, where they could pray for Peter's release. If you remember that story, then once Peter was released, they thought, well, there's no way that's Peter. It has to be an angel or something because Peter's in prison. It's just a humorous story, but it's an amazing example of God's power and grace. But in that, we also learned that that larger home that they gathered in was the home of Mark's mother, Mary. And just simply put, we can just do the math pretty easy on that one, because poor families did not have large enough homes to hold big groups like that. So we know his family had some, some money. We also know that he was a cousin of Barnabas. We know a lot about Barnabas and Paul, those who were, went on that missionary trip in Acts, the first missionary journey of Paul. Paul Barnabas was this encouraging man who actually got the church to accept Paul as a believer and a convert. And so Colossians 4.10 tells us that Mark was indeed the cousin of Barnabas. And if you remember your, your history, your New Testament history, you know that on that first missionary journey, it was Paul, and it was Barnabas, and it was Mark. Mark went with them. But he did not stay the course. For some reason that we are not privy to he left partway through that missionary journey and he went back home to Jerusalem. Let's be honest, no one likes a quitter, right? We've all been there where we're depending on someone and we're expecting that they're going to kind of pull their weight and all of a sudden they just throw in the towel and, and they quit. And it leaves you kind of hanging. Well, it didn't really hinder the productivity or the success of this first missionary trip with Paul and Barnabas but later on, Paul and Barnabas started talking. It's like, hey, you know what? We should go back to all of those churches, all those believers that we visited the first time. We should go back so we can encourage them. We can see how they're doing. We can just kind of help strengthen the church in regards to that. And well, as they talked about that, Mark's previous departure came up. In fact, we'll be back to, to Mark. I promise we'll be back to Mark. But just go ahead and go to Acts. Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15. I want you to go all the way to the end of the chapter. Well, towards the end of the chapter. I want you to go down to verse 36 with me. Acts 15, verse 36. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John, called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement, so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. I love this because it says it so 
tactfully. So kind of in polite terms, it says that a sharp disagreement arose between them. What that literally means is they had a heated, intense argument over whether Mark should be allowed to go with them. And just think about that with me for a minute. How would you like to know that you are the man, because of your failure in the past, you are the man who is responsible for breaking up what arguably is probably the greatest missionary team that ever existed? That's a heavy burden. And I don't think Mark just got over that quickly and easily. So we know that about him, but but not only did Mark grow beyond that, what's really interesting is he actually became very important in ministry, not only helping Barnabas, but he became even important to Paul. In Philemon chapter, Philemon chapter, Philemon verse 24, Paul calls him his fellow worker. And then at the very end of his life, as Paul is knowing he's going to be killed soon, he's going to die, he, he writes to Timothy and he says this, Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. I think that says a lot about the character of Mark. He went with Barnabas. After that first failure, he went with Barnabas as a missionary. We know that certainly he would have been trained and mentored by Barnabas. And here's the thing, he stuck with it. Yeah, he failed the first time, but he stuck with it. And even then, he helped Paul later on and became useful to him in ministry. I tell you, and you know this as well as I do, it is far too easy to quit and to give up when you failed, especially when you have others saying that you don't even deserve a second chance. That's what Paul was saying. We can't trust this guy. We're not taking him with us. And Barnabas is like, yeah, I think we can. I think we should. And like I said, Scripture says it so politely, a sharp disagreement arose between them. But they parted ways over it. It was such an intense thing. But I think that, again, this says a lot about Mark because I think it takes integrity, it takes courage to learn from your mistakes and then become a faithful servant of Jesus Christ. So that's, we know all about that all about Mark from these various passages in Scripture. But there's one more thing, very important relationship. In fact, I would suggest perhaps the most important relationship that Mark had with anyone that we know of in Scripture, and that is with Peter. You don't have to turn there, but in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 13, Peter calls Mark, he says, he calls him my son. Now, what that means, of course, he wasn't his biological father, but it, it means that he was his spiritual mentor. Perhaps it even means that Peter was the one who led Mark to saving faith in Jesus Christ. We don't know for sure, but I will say this at the very minimum. It means that Mark and Peter had a close personal relationship. And I think that's very significant, especially as we get into the book of Mark. I think there's at least a a couple of reasons. I think that that relationship with Peter and Mark is so, so important. First of all, who better to understand what it's like to start again after a colossal failure than Peter? I mean, he of the three denials of Christ would have known very well how to encourage and to help someone who had made an embarrassing and cowardly mistake. 
So I think it's very significant that God allowed Peter to be such a significant part of Mark's life. Second reason I think that that relationship is so important is, while Mark may not have been an eyewitness to much of Jesus' ministry, Peter was, right? We know that. In fact, tradition and the early church consistently taught that Peter had a profound impact on Mark and that in many ways, I think this is so interesting, that in many ways the gospel of Mark could almost be called the gospel of Peter. While Mark was the author, we understand that while Mark was the author, he probably based it on things that Peter had told him and taught him. In fact, the early church, Justin Martyr, writing about 150 AD, he referred to the Gospel of Mark as the memoirs of Peter. Uh, Arrhenius, another early church leader, writing about 35 years later, he called Mark the disciple and interpreter of Peter. And he recorded that the second gospel consisted of what Peter preached about Christ. Don't lose that in these months ahead as we go through and we look at this book, this incredible book of Mark. Don't lose that perspective that Peter was heavily involved in at least guiding and teaching and training Mark in regards to that. The New, Common, the new Bible Commentary excuse me, puts it this way. It says, there are many details in the gospel that are best explained as personal memories of Peter. For example, descriptions of incidents at which only Peter, James, and John were present. Another possible clue is that the gospel is very uncomplimentary to Peter, pointing out all of his faults and failings. As Peter later became such an important man at Rome, it is hard to see how these could have got into the gospel unless Peter himself had insisted on it. You will see in the months ahead, Peter, his faults are laid bare. I think that that shows a lot of humility on Peter's part. Rather than trying to make himself look good, he willingly showed his mistakes so that we can understand better what happened in these episodes and also to learn from them. Personally, I think Peter's openness in the gospel of Mark, his willingness to point out all of his failures, I think that makes Peter a lot more relatable for all of us. And I suspect that if we had a, took a poll on it, who's your favorite disciple, I think Peter would be one that most of us would probably vote for. Because he messed up a lot. (laughs) That's something we can relate to. So that's Mark the man. Those are things that we know about him. Now, what do we know about the book before we really get into it. First of all, it's the most succinct of the four Gospels. (laughs) Maybe that's why I like it so well. I'm a big believer that quite often less is more. Just let me clarify something. Please don't take that to mean that I'm going to start shortening my sermons, okay? (laughs) I just want you to know that in theory at least... I hold to the principle that often less is more. So, so yeah, don't get your hopes up. Um, no, not, not a chance on that. But I do think that the shortness of this book, it's, it's fascinating how much information can be packed into a, a, a short gospel like this. You know, the, the comparative brevity of Mark compared to the other gospels, does that have something to do with Mark's personality? Perhaps. We don't really know. Maybe, maybe Mark was like, like the man who took his friend fishing. 
these two guys out in the boat there, and they're there to fish, not to talk. So an hour goes by, and they're just in the boat, neither saying a word. They're just concentrating on their fishing. Finally, though, the friend who had been invited, he stretches his leg and says, oh, got a little cramp, a little cramp there for a minute. Guy who invited him over just kind of gives him a look, goes back to fishing. For another hour, nothing is said. It's just absolute silence in, in the boat. But the, the guest, finally, he's like, oh, man, sitting in this boat starting to hurt my back. His friend gave him a harsh look and curtly said, did you come here to fish or do you want to talk all day? Right? So maybe that's what Mark is like. Maybe Mark just didn't like to talk a lot. We don't know. We really don't know. I personally suspect that the shortness of his book has a lot more to do with his audience and the content of the book than his personality. We just don't know. So we know it's the shortest, the most succinct of the four Gospels. Also, Mark wrote the book primarily for Gentile Christians and specifically those in Rome. Now, there are several clues of this within the book, and so I'm, I, know, I know this is a lot of introductory material, but I, it's going to bear fruit later on as we go through this book. I want to just show a few different clues to you about that from the book. First of all, Mark often translated Hebrew or Aramaic terms. Matthew, for example, who wrote to Jews, did not do that. Mark knew that his readers, remember he wrote primarily to Gentile Christians, he knew that they would need some clarification upon these, th- these, these terms, these phrases. So let me just give you a few examples. Mark, We're back in Mark now. See, I told you we'd get there sooner or later. Mark, go to chapter 3. I'm just going to show you a few different things here that uh, give us clue, insight into his audience. Mark chapter 3, verse 17. Mark 3, 17. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, see, he translates it, sons of thunder. Uh, Go a couple pages over to chapter 5, verse 41. 541. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. See, he translated these things so that the readers could understand. Just a couple more, chapter 7, chapter 7, verse 11. Chapter 7, verse 11. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, here's the translation, that is, given to God. So as we're in, in chapter 7, go down to verse 34. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. Now, I don't know what you... I'm a Gentile. I like these translations of these words because I don't know Hebrew or Aramaic. It's helpful to me, but I guarantee it was helpful to his readers. Secondly, Mark explained some of the Jewish customs. Again, Matthew, I'm just going to kind of use him as comparison. Matthew often did not explain them. He didn't need to. The Jews fully understood them. As long as we're here in chapter 7, go back to the beginning of that chapter, 
Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 4. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him with, with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled. That is unwashed. Here he goes into the explanation. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. See, so he explains these things so that the people will understand more about that. Thirdly, Mark used several Latin words without explaining them. Now, I'm not good at Latin either. So, but, but see, the reason he could do that, this leads us to believe that his primary audience was probably people living in or around the area of Rome. We see this, I'm not going to have you look up the verses, but in, in chapter 5, verse 9, where he uses the word legion, he doesn't explain what that is. In, in chapter 6, verse 27, he uses the word executioner. Doesn't explain that. Those are Latin words. Remember, if he was writing to Hebrews, they might not have gotten that. And then in, in 1220, 12, excuse me, 1242, he uses the word, it's translated in our English, as penny. Again, it's a Latin word that he gives no explanation for. The fourth thing is Mark left out some distinctly Jewish elements. For example, while both Matthew and Luke include lengthy genealogies, Mark completely avoids them. The Jewish people loved genealogies. They loved tracing their history. They loved the numbers that went in regards to all of this stuff. Mark doesn't give us any of that. And then also, I find it interesting, he uses a lot less references of the Old Testament than the other gospel writers do. And think about that. That makes sense, right? Because the readers, the primary readers, they wouldn't have been familiar with the Hebrew Old Testament. And so all of those things give us clues in regards to this, that his primary audience were Gentile Christians. Third thing about the book, it's a book of action, not not long sermons. Mark does not share some of Jesus' longer sermons that are included in the other three Gospels. Mark is more of a book of narrative and action rather than of lengthy preaching. So that helps us. That will help us as we get into the book. The, the final thing I want to look at this morning really is just Mark's message. Then. What is his message? Because each of the Gospels, they have their own primary point of emphasis. G- Excuse me. Matthew's primary emphasis is Jesus the King. A lot goes into that, and you can see it as you read through it. Luke's primary emphasis is Jesus the Son of Man. John's is Jesus the Son of God. Well, Mark's is what I have named this sermon series, Jesus the Servant of God. That's what we will see throughout this. In fact, to give you a what I would say is a key verse for this entire book is Mark 10.45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Throughout this book, now we will see many times, many examples of Jesus' acts of service. And of course, culminating in his sacrificial death at the cross for us. A lot of introductory stuff, so let's get into the book. I'm going to cover a whole verse today. 
kind of starting slow. You know, I'm setting the bar a little low so that way I can improve. But go with me to Mark chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Short and simple. The beginning. <laughs> now, please, please tell me that when you think of that, starting at the beginning, that, that I'm not the only one whose mind went back to that. The sound of music, right? the, the song Do, Re, Mi, right? Let's start at the very beginning. <laughs> A very good place to start. See, I'm not the only one. There's like two or three of us. But anyway, so... <laughs> But here he is. What a difference this is in its simplicity, but yet profound nature of this. Because you think, again, I'm just going to refer to them in comparison. Matthew, he begins his book with this lengthy genealogy of Jesus all the way back to Abraham. Luke begins with the very lengthy birth accounts of first John the Baptist and then Jesus and follows that with a genealogy. John begins his book with the, with the eternal pre-existence of Jesus. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Mark, so different. Simple pronouncement of the gospel the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we talked about that earlier. The gospel just, it simply means good news. The good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Hear what he does in this first verse. It's the commencement. It's, it's the ushering in of something new. It is what he brings into here is the fulfillment of God's salvation. That salvation that we also sang about that was longed for and it was prophesied about and it was foretold over and over and over again throughout the Old Testament. And for centuries, the people waited and they waited. Now, here, Mark, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. I love the way that he does that. Short and simple, but like I said, so extremely profound. And of course, that good news is none other than Jesus Christ. We will see him throughout this entire gospel. We will see the salvation that he offers, that he offers freely for us to receive. We will see this Savior who gives this gift, offers it to all, that we can become followers of his through faith alone. I tell you, I am excited about this book of Mark, and I hope that you will be too. It's only 16 chapters. I would encourage you, if you have time this week, it won't take you long. Sit down and just read it through one, one sitting. Don't just do a chapter. Chapter divisions were added centuries later, right? Just read it through and just contemplate on what we talked about. And you'll see, you'll see Peter, often mentioned, Often not in the best light, but you will see Jesus Christ. Because that's what this book is about. It is about Jesus Christ. So, there, I covered my verse. I pat myself on the back, but there's not a lot to do in regards to that. But I do want to just, in our final few minutes here, I want to just give you two quick application points from what we've seen this morning. More than just this first verse, but I want to really just kind of bring it all to this conclusion. Two application points. One is, make the good news of Jesus the main focus of your life. 
there's so many distractions in life. There's so many things that can take our mind and our energy and just run in different directions. And I'm not saying they are all bad. But understand this, everything that we do, everything that we say, every interaction we have with other people, every hobby, every sport that we engage in, every communication, and yes, that includes social media of any and every form. But understand this, everything that we do needs to be done with the realization that what the world needs most is a Savior to save them from their sins. You can be involved in other things. I encourage you to do that. But always keep the main focus of your life, the gospel message of Jesus Christ. People don't always need to know where you stand on every single little issue. They need to know this. Jesus is the only answer. That's what they need to Make that the primary focus of your life. As Paul writes, we are Christ's ambassadors. So... Being his ambassador, his representative to the world, we have to be careful. Whatever we, however we engage other people, whenever we engage other people, we have to be careful to always keep the good news of Jesus the main focus of our lives. Second application point is this. Don't let your failures define you. Think of this with think of Mark with me on this. He went from basically being a pariah, right? Someone that Paul thought so little of that he Paul was willing to break up his partnership with Barnabas rather than take him along. He went from that person that Paul would not even consider to take with him. He went to one of the became one of the writers of Holy Scripture. <laughs> How is that possible? I'll tell you, it's because he refused to give up on serving Christ in spite of his colossal failures, in spite of the shame, and I guarantee you he had shame, in spite of the embarrassment, I guarantee you he was embarrassed as he looked back, in spite of the guilt that he undoubtedly felt because he had left them and actually was used then to... This, this schism between Paul and Barnabas. But all of that, he didn't run from it, but he carried on in spite of it. And look what God did through him. We have a gospel of Jesus Christ from this man who had failed. And so I want you to remember this, my friends. It's never, never, never about how badly you have messed up. It's always about how great our Savior is. Don't lose sight of that. He can and he will use any of us for his glory if we will only let him by making ourselves be available to serve him. Who we are in Christ is what defines us as believers. It's not our mistakes, it's not our failures. And I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I'm just telling you, my hand is up that I am so thrilled that I am defined by who I am in Christ and not by my mistakes. 
Keep that in mind. Oh, please, keep that in mind as we read and we study this gospel together. Because this book is written by someone (laughs) who understood very well what it was to fail. And it was well known. But yet, he willingly served and became a writer of the gospel. Amazing. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the redeeming power of Jesus Christ to forgive us for our sins, to make us new. Thank you for the redeeming power of Jesus Christ to give us a position of righteousness before you. Thank you for the redeeming power of Jesus Christ so that we are no longer defined by our mistakes, our failures, our mess-ups, our screw-ups. We are not defined by our sin. We are defined by who we are in Jesus because of Jesus. We are made new creatures. We are new creations in him. God, oh, help us embrace that truth this week. There will be times, whether it's ourselves or whether it's someone else pointing out our faults, or whether it's Satan whispering in our ears, we will all have times this week where we just think that we are never going to amount to anything good, or worthwhile, or comparing to others. Free us from that. Help us instead to take our eyes off our failures and look to our dear Savior, the one who rose from the grave, the one who is interceding for us now, and the one who will come back for us someday. In his name I pray, amen.